Hello and welcome back, folks. Um, my guest today is my friend and colleague, uh, Ryan Tafalowski. Ryan is um, a assistant professor of theology at Denver Seminary. In fact, he is coming from his office upstairs and I'm coming from my office downstairs at Denver Seminary. We saw each other at the front desk uh, this morning when we came into the office. Um, and uh, so we're doing a series about the church. So. Um, Ryan, thanks for like, you know, this great sacrifice from your office to my office. Yeah, I didn't want to walk all the way downstairs. It's Monday and I'm already tired. So right. thanks for accommodating me. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. special accommodations. So, um, Ryan, you and I have talked uh, before in the student center. We had kind of an informal conversation and I um, shared with you a little then a little bit of my background um, and why, why I wanted to talk with you, but I'll do that for. Um, people who are listening today. So um, years ago, I was uh, teaching a leadership class, realized that I was teaching a ministry or I was teaching ministry leadership. I had advanced degrees from a bunch of schools about about like ministry and leadership um, and was had been part of the church or and a church, local church for decades by that point um, and even more so now and have served the church and taught for the church and actually knew very little about what the church is or is supposed to be and do. Um, and so that led me on this journey of just kind of finding out for myself, um, developing a class I teach here at Denver Seminary in our D-Min program called Reclaiming Ecclesiology, because um, I found that I wasn't the only one who didn't, didn't think about these things. Um, and so, and you are also a pastor. I know, yeah, I mean, I said you're assistant professor, but you have been pastoring uh, for many years and are a pastor's kid. My condolences for you <laughs> for that. Um, and so you've been immersed as well. And so, um, and, but I, and, you know, as we were talking um, a couple months ago, you know, we talked about how, how much I think we just assume from our experience or what works and stuff. So I'm going to, I'm going to start out with the, the theology question, but for as a pastor as well, like, what is the church? How would you define it or describe it? What is the church? Well, I, I think the place to start is probably how the New Testament talks about it. And uh, if I could put it this way, the New Testament kind of talks about the church primarily as a people, but also as a place and as an institution. You know, it's pretty popular to say, I mean, I went to a Christian college um, like perhaps some of your listeners did. And it was pretty popular those days to say, hey, you know, uh, the church isn't a place, man. It's a people. So we can have church sort of anywhere or maybe we don't have to go anywhere at all. Maybe we can be the church scattered. But uh, the New Testament, I don't think really sees it that way. The, the, the New Testament, I think, sees the church as the place where the spirit of God dwells when believers come together. Uh, and I know that there's lots of, con um, yeah, this is a contested sort of issue, but I, I, I'm pretty convicted that the New Testament sees this as physically drawing together as a tangible body uh, where the spirit comes and is present. Uh, and it is the place where God is sort of headquartering his, his next phase of the mission to make all things new, which culminates in the incarnation of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus uh, and the Great Commission. So uh, what's the church? I don't know. It's it's the it's the people of God together. 
um, participating in the life and mission of God. Well, and so you say it's the place where, and so I, I mean, I think some people and I too can go place. So, so do you mean 6399 South Santa Fe, which is Denver Seminary's address? Don't send us any white powder in the mail or anything. I'll send it up to Ryan's <laughs> office. But uh, okay. I mean, when you say place, I mean, it's like, and but you talk about it being the people. So keep talking about that. Tell me more. Well, uh, yes, I think there's no other way for people to assemble except in incarnate places. And so one of the things that's so striking about the letters of the New Testament is that they are um, terribly, terribly particular. They are addressed mm -hmm. to a particular body of people who are assembling, as we know, in someone's house because Paul tells us. Uh, and so even though Paul, I think, can conceptualize of a sort of universal church with a big C across time and space, there's no other way for that church to become instantiated except through local congregations, which uh, assemble together. So I pastor a church called Foothills Fellowship in Littleton. Um, and in some profound sense, that church is at 9179 West Weaver Drive. Now, if our building blows up or burns down and we get some insurance money, like uh, all fifty thousand dollars of it, or whatever our building would be worth. Right. Uh, if we, if we, if we move to another location, we would still be the same people, but we would have no, we would have no other way of being the church except congregating in a specific place. And I think the New Testament really doesn't have a vision of the church that is not made manifest in local congregations of, of believers tangibly meeting in a place. So some how so you would say it's not this descriptive but a prescriptive. I mean like there's I mean I think there's some people today who would say well it's just the people we can gather online. I mean what do you do with like online church? Yeah, this is tricky. We we all uh any of us in church ministry had to negotiate this pretty seriously over the last few years. Um and uh, I'll just speak out of my own my my own experience. Basically, where we landed is uh, we we started meeting again, of course, as uh, COVID started to recede, and we still do have sort of an online streaming option. Um, I'm not sure I'm happy with that, and I'm not trying to project onto any other pastor or anything out there. I'm talking about my congregation. Um, uh, we kept it as a sort of a concession to pragmatism. You know, we have folks who are shut-ins or who are uh, ill or can't make it out all the time. And uh, it didn't didn't feel right to cut them off from the life of the church. I mean, the technology to sort of keep them tangentially connected. But so a thinker who's really helped me here is uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Mm -hmm. um, I, I specialize in terms of theological research in uh, what I affectionately call dead Germans. I'm very <laughs> interested in uh, <laughs> dead Germans, Germans in the 19th and 20th centuries. And Bonhoeffer's got this little book, Life Together, mm -hmm. which I'm sure many of your listeners will know. Um, and he's uh, that book's not about the church per se, but it is about sort of Christian community. And he's very, very concerned that it is embodied. Um, he's got in mind sort of listening to sermons on the radio, um, which we see as sort of cute and quaint. Uh, he never could have envisioned something like what we're doing now. But why he doesn't think that quite cuts it is because, well, a few reasons. Number one, um, no matter what tradition 
you're in, Christian faith is is inherently material, uh, particularly in the way that Christians think about the sacraments. Uh, and uh, even if you're in a tradition that holds a sort of symbolic view of the Lord's Supper, like I do, like in the Baptist tradition, there is something about sort of Christians being at the common table, sharing these material elements together um, that, that makes the presence of Christ manifest uh, that in a way that's not replicable in sort of disembodied states. But Bonhoeffer also says that one of the things that really matters here is that um, you need to hear the voice and touch of your brother and sister because he thinks this is Jesus Christ being made manifest. So um, in, as a Lutheran, he's particularly concerned with parishioners hearing that their sins have been absolved. And the way that you do this is by your brother or sister touching you, putting their hand on, their sho- on your shoulder and saying, you're forgiven, you're accepted. That's, that's the voice of Jesus coming through. And there could be some sort of pale facsimile on that. Uh, via, via streaming or something like this, but you wouldn't get that sort of embodied sense of Jesus Christ's closeness to you, right? Bonhoeffer is very fond of talking about the church as Jesus Christ existing as community. And he doesn't mean that metaphorically. He means that literally. Yeah, yeah. So there's an embodied piece of it. And then what about, you know, in that gathering, and you talked about like gathering, I think you talked about the mission of God and purpose of God. So like, what do you see as a theologian and, you know, biblical scholar, like um, what needs to be part of that gathering or the work when they're not gathered, when they're scattered? Mm. Well, here again, it depends on what tradition you're in. But if you're in a sort of broadly Protestant world, uh, the reformers, Luther and Calvin and uh, specifically want to think about the question, sort of what constitutes a true church? Um, in ways that are different than the sort of medieval Roman Catholic heritage that they inherited. So uh, in sort of medieval Catholic, and I think it's fair to say sort of contemporary Catholic theology, what constitutes the true church is apostolic succession understood through the literal transmission of the authority of the apostles through the laying out of hands and the ordination of bishops and priests. Um And so it's quite straightforward, actually, if you're Roman Catholic to say, where is the church? Well, it's the place where the bishop presides with the authority that he received from the Mm -hmm. apostles. The Protestant reformers, when they when they broke from the Roman Catholic Church, that's one of the things that ruptured. And so they're trying to reconceive of models for um, marks of the true church. Um, And so they transfigure the way that apostolicity or apostolic succession is Mm -hmm. defined from sort of an office that is transmitted to a sort of consistency with apostolic teaching. So one of the ways they would answer that question is where's the church, wherever you get the true teaching of the apostles, right? The the faith that has been handed over once and for all to the saints. Uh, And they added uh, wherever the sacraments are rightly administered. So uh, where's the church? Well, For Protestants, it has been proclamation of the word that is consistent with the teaching of the apostles and then the exercise of the sacraments or ordinances in ways that are consistent um, with the Protestant heritage. And so they sort of dispensed with that kind of institutionalized vision Mm -hmm. to a sort of more um, logocentric, word centric vision. And this is 
part of the heritage of evangelicalism. And this is one of the things that's so great about evangelicalism is the centrality of the word, but it also can make it difficult to sort of know where the church begins and where it ends, what mm -hmm. constitutes a church, um, what is properly the domain of the church, what could be handled by the parachurch. That question's a little bit murkier in Protestantism, and that's that's for sort of reasons of our genetic makeup from the 16th century. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, and uh, you know, you said, I think you said, you went to a Christian college, I went to a Christian college. I mean, like what makes, uh, if, what makes the, ch the church different from, or is it different from um, when we gather at chapel at our Christian college, or, you know, yes. my son was uh -huh. at his campus ministry, you know, and if, if it's believers gathered together, mm -hmm. what, how do you tease that out? Yeah. How do you, because uh, different, different people do it different ways, right? How do I tease it out? Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. Okay. So I, I, yes, like you said, I went to a Christian college and, uh, unless you went to a Christian college, you won't understand some of the kind of strange idiosyncrasies of this world. Uh, some of the, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's sad, sometimes it's funny and sad together. Um, and I remember, uh, going, I played soccer in college and I remember going on an athlete's retreat, um, where we had a sort of informal worship service with the, the men's and women's soccer teams. And then there was like a, a sort of um, impromptu sort of uh, communion service. Uh, and I, I don't remember uh, what the foods were. It was, but it was not bread Twink and wine. Twinkies and something. Yeah. yeah. So Sometimes you hear about like summer camps, like right. be, like Pepsi and Twinkies or something. Right. Um, and we, you know, we sang worship songs and uh, there was some sort of teaching from the word. And I remember feeling sort of vaguely uneasy uh, that mm. that this was sort of what was transpiring. It didn't feel right to me for ways that I, don't, I, I couldn't articulate. Um, now I think I could give a, a better account for why I think I was I was a little bit disturbed by that. Number one, I don't think, and this, this is sometimes a feature of evangelical ecclesiology, not a very high view of ordination. Yeah. So there's not a sense in which uh, anyone has been sort of uniquely gifted and commissioned to exercise this kind of office. Now I'm in the Baptist tradition, which, uh, and Baptists are really diverse, but some Baptists, including my stream, tends to have sort of a low view of ordination, not in the sense that it's not important, but there's not a lot of pomp around it. It's just sort of a local congregation basically appoints someone to to sort of run um, the practices of worship because of gifting and because, um, because of a sense of calling. Uh, but even there, there is this sense in which the, the pastor, or um, if you're in a sort of Lutheran or Anglican, the priest, has some sort of unique calling and even authority to do these things. Not, and this is another difference between um, another emphasis of Protestant theology, not because there's anything sort of spiritually superior about your pastor to a, an ordinary lay person. Reformation theologians have always stressed the priesthood of all believers. So I'm the pastor at Foothills, not because I'm of a higher spiritual caliber or quality than anybody else but because uh, I'm in this office. So they often use the language of office. Mm -hmm. So there was no, there was not this sense that anyone um, was qualified to do it. And 
I don't know. I mean, I'm not a New Testament scholar, but when I read Paul describing the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians, it seems like there's something really holy and therefore potentially very dangerous happening Mm. here. So Mm. I think what kind of disturbed me was the sort of flippancy about it. Um, And then uh, there's also this, this, criterion of the reformers, the sort of true preaching of the word. Uh, And so another place where a high view of ordination comes in is that, I mean, you read the New Testament, it's unmistakable that teachers seem to have to be able to do this in a way that that is um, qualified, right? They, they, They have to sort of know how to handle the scriptures which means that there has to be some sort of training involved. Mm-hmm. Um, now I work in a seminary, so yeah. uh, as do you. So, I mean, I, I think you can probably tell where I stand on this question. I, it's not that I think every pastor must go to seminary, um, but I'm not sure for Luther or for Calvin that sort of someone who's not really trained in the scriptures sort of saying a few words and then passing out Twinkies counts. Uh, and actually might be might be worse than that. So, you know, now like you're in the Baptist tradition, which in some ways is um, uh, low church in not value, not not valuing the church, but like you said, just less formal about it, uh, more mm-hmm. more at the congregational level as opposed to denominational yes. level. But then that even I would say in some ways lower in that sense is non-denom, right? And so mm-hmm. anybody can choose. So so. Who gets to decide if the word is being rightly preached, you know, mm-hmm. and I think you and I have seen congregations making a determination based on what they want their ears tickled to be, you know, so mm-hmm. um, how, how do you, as we start to splinter yeah. even more non-denominationalism, you know, as opposed to certain tradition, long-staying Presbyterian, you know, some of those that have a higher view and certain, you know, everything decently and in order. Yeah. Well, I think you hit on it there. I mean, it's it's uh, it's also a feature of some forms of evangelicalism, including sort of low church, non-denominational expressions that in terms of their theological method, whether this is implicit or explicit, uh, in every tradition, every Christian, every congregation has a theological method, whether this has been reflected upon or not, uh, it could be implicit. But these these expressions tend to have theological methods that uh, devalue the place and role of tradition as a theological resource. Mm. Um, and there are, there are reasons for this. Some of, some of them are understandable. This is an impulse of the Reformation, I think, intensified. But uh, where you can get into trouble is that sometimes you get these congregations that don't sort of feel accountable in any way to the wider Christian tradition, mm-hmm. understood sort of horizontally, other contemporary Christian traditions and also understood historically that that it actually doesn't matter much what Christians have thought in the, in the last 2000 years of Christian history, because all we need is the Bible. But, um, and I don't mean to be uncharitable. This is, this is in many ways, the world that I came out of people saying, Oh, we don't need the creeds and we don't need to read historical figures because we just, we just read the Bible. Right. Mm -hmm. But, um, that presupposes that, um, it's possible to read the Bible in a way that is not historically mediated, which is just, isn't true. Mm-hmm. It's not possible. Um, 
So um, one helpful check on this can be, um, are the teachings of the scriptures consistent with the teaching, uh, sorry, are the teachings of the word in, in a given congregation, are they consistent with the apostolic deposit, the, the, the regula fidei, the rule of faith? Is, um, some theologians like um, uh, George Lindbeck or uh, Stanley Hauerwas, they like to compare Christian doctrines to grammars. Um, and this metaphor has its limitations, but where I find it's really valuable is that that actually does provide us a, a way of judging whether someone is actually speaking Christianly mm. or not, mm. right? Just like if you're a native speaker of a language, there are grammatical errors that you will notice if someone misspeaks. Um, the Christian tradition can function like that. It can help us to sort of think and speak Christianly. And when we know how Christians have spoken and thought, when we hear teaching that is not consistent, that can raise red flags. So I think an awareness of, of the tradition helps. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, you and I talked, uh, last time we had this, talked sort of about this stuff. I threw out several different scenarios of, of ways uh, I think Christians today feel like they are practicing church or, or comments I hear and I like you with the Twinkies and I go, mm, I'm not sure, you know, why I'm uncomfortable with this, but I'd love for you to, you know, apply your theological pastoral uh, knowledge of, you know, like somebody in your congregation said, well, um, my church is when I go hiking in the woods with a bunch of friends. That's church for me. What would you say? Uh, with respect, I would say no. Um, I, there are people in my life, people I care about a lot, who talk like this. Or they'll say, oh, uh, my church is on the golf course. That's how I go to church. Um, and I would, uh, there's a cynical part of me that just says, no, you just like to play golf. And going to golf is way more fun than going to church. So just say what you're doing, right? <laughs> you're yeah. Um, Here's a couple there's here's a couple places where I would push back to such a vision. Yeah. Number one, Jesus Christ has promised to be present in the assembled people of God by his spirit when they gather around word and table and baptism. He has promised to be present. Uh which means that if you go to the assembled body of believers, you will encounter Jesus Christ. He's there. Right. That's like an ontological reality. Mm. Right. He, he is there. Um, if you go hiking and you're asking the wrong person, I'm like your husband, an avid indoorsman. Um, <laughs> I, I married into a really outdoorsy family. So I do these things to stay married, but I don't like it. Yeah. Right. So I, I go to the mountains and I'm like, why are we doing this? Yeah. Like, let's where are the books and the plumbing. So uh, <laughs> But I understand that I'm an outlier, especially as a native Coloradan, and that many people have spiritual experiences in nature. Um, but uh, God, you may encounter God in nature. You can, but he hasn't promised that he'll be present mm -hmm. there. And there's a, there's a, uh, I believe an underlying fallacy of theological method behind that kind of thinking that just sort of assumes that God is present in nature in some sort of unsophisticated and unambiguous way. And I would reject that premise. I, I, I'm not at all certain 
that God is just sort of intrinsically present. And I am certain that he's not identical with creation, Mm -hmm. which is a fallacy that often is made. Nothing actually could be further from the presuppositions of the Judeo-Christian faith. God is not the world and the world is not God. Um, And I even am suspicious of some sort of Christian panentheism, which suggests that God is present in, uh, in nature in some sort of unique way. Uh, now, not every theologian would hold that view, but I've become convicted of it. And mm-hmm. number number two, um, if you encounter God in nature, uh, many theologians have pointed this out, uh, chief among them, Karl Barth, uh, <clears throat> that still needs to be interpreted, right? It It's mm-hmm. not at all clear, actually, what God is trying to communicate to you if you encounter him in nature uh, beyond some sort of experience of the numinous or something uh bart would say actually sometimes we need to be skeptical of our experiences of nature for example he says that if if god god's design for the world is truly revealed in the world as it is then what other choice do we have to conclude that god delights in cruelty because that seems to be the mechanism that advances Mm. um, the natural world through Mm. natural selection and uh, survival of the fittest so that's probably more than you bargained for, but what uh, I'm a bit suspicious of a sort of natural mysticism that you get in some forms of uh, evangelical yeah. piety and spirituality. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the biggest thing is, I think that God, God has promised to be present in the assembled body of believers, and then um, there, there we receive a word from God in word and sacrament that is. Um, while still needs to be interpreted to be sure is actually, I think, clearer and more edifying mm-hmm. um, than a hike. What, a, what about, um, <clears throat> here's another one, and we've uh, talked about this. Um, uh, I'm going to piece together. I listen to Christian radio and I get my worship there. I go to my Bible study group on Monday nights. I get that. I have my small group from the old church I used to go to. Um, I'm involved in Awana with my kids in this church. I mean, what about kind of this piecemeal thing? How much is there? If we're all the, if, if all Christians are the body, and this is what I hear. If, if, if we're Christians, yeah. we're part of the body. So the body is there and the body is here. What's the difference? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a very strange thing to say. If you take the, the metaphor of Paul's body seriously, it's a bit like saying, uh, yeah, I'm an elbow in this body, and then I am uh, transplanted into another body where I serve another function, and then there's a, still another body that uh, I live in part of the time. Uh, Paul seems to think that the church is an organic community where we are vitally connected to one another in such a way that he doesn't even seem to have to justify it. He just sort of takes it for granted. Um, Now there's of course some historical differences, right? Say you're, uh, I don't know, you're a Christian in Ephesus, the first century, there's just the one church at Ephesus. So you can't just like go to youth group at uh, another church in Ephesus and Sunday morning on on the main church. So I'll grant that. But um Another thing, another concern I would have about that is that um, Paul, in his letters, really seems to think that the gospel has not done its work 
until a community is fully reconciled and committed to being with one another in partnership over a long period of time, mm. knowing all the difficulties that that will involve. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the sort of objection I would have to that sort of church a la carte is that it never, it, uh, it never forces you to confront people that you would never otherwise be in a room with, which is what the gospel does for Paul. Uh, primarily in the first century across ethnic lines, but also across uh, social and class lines. Um, He expects people who have no business being together in any other context to commit to one another's highest good because they are mutually indwelled by the spirit of God who has called them together. And so my concern with that sort of a la carte approach is that it tends to sort along all kinds of other lines, socioeconomic Mm -hmm. lines, uh, or lines of, of personal affinity that we we basically go to a small group because we like the people there. And so we'd rather go to church with our friends. But actually, I think the New Testament's vision is that uh, there's a form of kinship that is stronger than friendship or natural affinity that is affected by the spirit of God. But um, to do it, you've got to hang in there. You've got to hang in there with people that you don't have much in common with or people that you may not like very much. I don't think Paul cares very much whether you like the people you go to church with. Uh, And I think my concern would be that we are sort of baptizing social constellations that we prefer when we do it that way. Yeah. Well, so um, but there's a lot of like micro churches today that are they're basically that they're affinity groups. And they say, well, um, you know. Uh, there's some talk and some movements about like what's the irreducible minimum for a church, you know, and, and it's that type of yeah. thing. So, so you can have your snowboarding church, you know, and as long as we're getting together and, and discussing. So, um, but I'm hearing you say like there's an embodied piece. There's the the word and the sacraments in apostolic tradition or, you know, the historical uh, tradition for that. There's there's a long-term commitment to a, a people. And I think of the Benedictines actually, you know, on the, the mm. other side of the, the timer is that, um, you know, Jesuits and some of the other orders commit to the work of the order. Um, but the yes. Benedictines actually commit to those people in that place uh-huh. yes. for life. Yes. Oh, it's, uh, it's such a good insight. And I wish that I had thought of it. Maybe we can edit it in such a way that. I'd That's right. This. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Now, if you read the rule of St. Benedict, that's exactly right. The rule of St. Benedict is a manual for people who know, uh, and this is Rowan Williams's phrase, commenting on the rule of St. Benedict, who know that the other person is not going away, mm-hmm. right, for better or for worse. And so what the rule of St. Benedict is, is tools to make us into the sorts of people who can live stably with other people, even if we don't like them, uh, uh, and even if we do. But even if you do like them. You live long enough in community, even if your small group is your best friends, if you live seriously in community with people long enough, all kinds of alienations and resentments, they're going to arise because human beings um, are broken, even when they're filled with the spirit of God. And so uh, what Benedict is interested in is how do we become the kinds of people who can commit to this sort of thing? The, The language he uses quite often is stability. How can we be stable with one another, knowing that we all have explosive personalities and we all have pet peeves and we all have different visions for what a community should be and do? Um, yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. That's so good. They, the well, their vow is, the is actually of stability. That's the vow. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's really yes. 
call it. And there's something really rich about it. And I don't mean to romanticize it because my church um, is is as dysfunctional as any other church, uh, if not more so in some ways. And we've had, oh, I mean, about 10 years ago, we had a horrific scandal in our mm. church. So mm. we've been we've been rocked by it all. Um, but we've also had people who have been worshiping Jesus together for 50 years. Mm. Um, and they are like the best image I can think of them is a sort of, it's like a colony of aspens. All those trees look like they're individual trees on the surface, but under the, under the ground, they're all, they share a root network, right? They're, mm. they're all mm -hmm. one thing. Um, but you can only get that if you're willing to stay put for a long, long time. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And if, um, and that's not to say there's never a good reason to leave a church. There are good reasons to leave churches, but they are few, I think. And there's lots of bad reasons to leave them. Mm. Um, so how would you, how do you understand the parachurch? How is it different or what we call the parachurch? I mean, because some of them would have, um, uh, you know, they do have some teaching or they might have not just Twinkies, but like, you know, something else. Um, they might have a seminary trained person leading it, but there's others, maybe Compassion International, you know, so is there is there a clear delineator or do you just kind of know when you see it? Yeah, that's a really tough question. Uh, and and uh, parachurch organizations are sort of a uniquely Protestant phenomenon, uh, for better or for worse. Yeah. So we can't really look anywhere else uh, in the church's tradition for them. And they're relatively recent. I mean, they, they really start in earnest. You would know better than I would. I know you've done a lot of work on this. The 19th century, I would think. Yeah, what we call um, parachurch. I mean, they kind of root from that, um, from the apostolate, some of the different orders and stuff like that. You know, like mm, uh, some mm. would say, you know, um, you know, the, the Jesuits and stuff, they weren't para-Catholic. They were they were particular purposeful branches, yes. but they had the congregational side. And then they also had this other side sometimes where they were gathering for, you know, with a priest there, but they, yeah. So, but, yep. but really you're right. It was kind of 19th century voluntary societies and um, yes. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's good. Yeah. So you got like the Franciscans and the Benedictines and the Dominicans. They are all orders, but they're orders of the Catholic church. So yeah. they, they have particular functions, but they're all under the umbrella uh, of Mother Rome, whereas in Protestants, they might be affiliated with the denomination, they might not, right? They might yeah. be sort of interdenominational, or they might be extra denominational. Um, I would, I would really resist calling them churches, even if there were some sort of aspect of teaching or communal life. I would. Um, it seems to me that that members of parachurch organizations should not think of the parachurch as a substitute for the church. Um, although I think that's fairly common. Um, I would want to think of them as sort of um, aug auxiliary institutions that aid the church in the broadest sense in participating in God's mission in the world. Um, because, well, another, fav another of my favorite theological concepts is finitude, mm -hmm. uh, boundedness. Uh, we are creatures. Mm -hmm. We're bounded. Uh, we're finite. We have limited capacity. And that's fine. That's not a problem. That's not a result of the fall. It's just proper to being a creature. Right. Humans are made this way. Yeah. That's how God intends it. 
And that means that we don't get any less finite when we build institutions. Our institutions are finite, and this includes the church. Uh, there are all kinds of things that the church cannot do. Um, for perfectly boring, pragmatic reasons. They don't have the money to do it. They don't have the time to do it. They don't have the resources. They're not in the right historical or cultural or geographical location to do certain kinds of work. Um, and this is where the parachurch, I think, can really assist by saying, hey, no, we're not the church. We're not a church, but we are the saints organizing resources in a particular way, in a particular context to 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 participate in one facet of the mission of God. Because I'm pretty convicted that no church can fulfill all the functions that the people of God is meant to fulfill. Mm -hmm. um, there is no church that is perfect on evangelism and perfect on questions of social justice and perfect on biblical teaching and perfect on community. Um, and it could be particularly the church's sort of outward facing functions, evangelism, uh, justice, uh, concern for, the marginalized where the parachurch can really assist the church without, without having to sort of supplant it or replace it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it seems like sometimes, uh, well, I think part of it is just using wrong. We use church so many different ways. It, it can mean a building. It can mean a specific congregation. It can mean uh, all the believers everywhere, you know? And so I think part of it is just mm. going, what do we mean uh, when when you say the word church, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Is it just a you know yeah. a collection of believers, or what are marks in that? So yeah, mm. yeah. As a pastor, um, a pa a theologian pastor or pastor theologian, what are the uh, false assumptions or beliefs or or maybe errant practices that you come across in a regular basis in your pastoral ministry in your congregation that you're saying, hey, we gotta that you kind of have to challenge people. Um, with respect to, to the church specifically or ecclesiology? Yeah, specifically? yeah, ecclesiology specifically, yeah. Okay. That's a really good question. Okay, I think so. We have to press back on. Um, I think one is, uh, Well, all the same issues that you see Paul addressing, particularly in the Corinthian correspondence. Uh, factionalism. Mm -hmm. um, I think is a, is a threat in every church. And this this doesn't uh, this doesn't have to mean. A group at a business meeting standing up and saying, hey, we're with Apollos instead of Pastor Ryan. Right. Uh, but it can take the form of sort of. Um, failure to buy in to, to something that the, the church as a whole is trying to do because you sort of personally disagree with it, or perhaps you, you feel, um, that resources should be used in another way. And there's a place to have those conversations, of course. Um, but part of being with any sort of institution, not least the church is that, uh, sometimes it will require us to sort of set aside our own agendas for how things might look and be. Um, and so rather than, I, I would encourage Christians that if if the church has a particular ministry that, that is maybe not how you would prefer or uh, not, not how you would have envisioned it if you were in charge, um, 
unless it's truly a matter of sort of orthodoxy or it's actively destructive or something like this, uh, rather than sort of taking your ball and going home and going to another place where they see things exactly like you do, maybe just sort of commit to being a sort of minority voice, mm. uh, but still willing to be uh, together in the bond of a spirit of unity in the bond of peace, as Paul asks the church to be. So that's one too. And I mean, I, I get this in leadership. You know, I, I, I'm in a, a Baptist context where we have congregational church government. Um, now we're a bit of a hybrid. We do have an elder board that can ratify certain decisions, but most of our big decisions are made by a congregational vote. And so um, when people come to me and say, hey, the church should do this, uh, I can't just do that unilaterally. That's not how our church polity is when it comes to big, big stuff. Um, and so we've had stuff go at a congregational vote where I, as the pastor, it went, it went against my preferences. Mm -hmm. uh, but I see the New Testament challenging me mm. to sort of to sort of make it work. And, and together find a way to discern the mind of Christ, uh, which Paul says to the Corinthian believers, you have the mind of Christ. Does that mean we're going to agree on everything all the time? No, but I do think it. It, it does mean that we can come to a consensus where we submit to one another out of uh, respect to the Lordship of Christ. Um, so that's one. I mean, um, and that stuff can be really sensitive because we get personally invested in, in ministries and we, and, you know, especially if our vision for something doesn't win out. Um, that's a big one. And there's a lot of churches right around the corner from you, Ryan, that, right, that I can go, to, you know, anybody could go. Yeah. Any yeah. point, like you said, in Ephesus, they were they weren't gonna. Where are they gonna go? Right, right. That's the challenge, uh, and it's a, it's a weird thing. It's I think it's a really ambiguous phenomenon. If you look at the history of the United States, one of the things that makes the church so vibrant here is that sort of, and I'm I'm gonna use a crass term, that sort of free market approach to Christianity, because churches have to sort of be vibrant and engaged and uh, serious about God's work, or else they'll shrivel and die. Uh, but one of the downsides of that is um, it can give folks an easy out because there's always somewhere else to go, yeah. right? Rather than having to stick it out with uh, people that, that God might be calling you to. Yeah, yeah. And so that's a really challenging, hard word. Um, but I do think it is, I think it's the New Testament's vision. Yeah, yeah. Who, um, who and what, like reading and authors, you've mentioned a couple of Howrahs, uh, Bonhoeffer, Bart, a couple others, um, for the you know, people who are listening, what, who don't want to get a PhD in theology, but like want to dig into some of this stuff. Who, I mean, I would say Bonhoeffer, Life Together, for sure, some of Howrah's yeah. stuff, but any in particular, and are there others? Uh, Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, is really good. It's very accessible. Um, yeah. Even if you don't have much of a background in theology, I think you'll be able to sort of track with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, a thinker who has helped me quite a lot is Helmut Tielicke, mm. uh 20th century Lutheran. He is pretty challenging, though. Uh, he, he would not be for the faint of heart. Uh, let's see. Uh, Jake Meador is a contemporary writer who's done a lot of good work on this. He's written a book called What Are Christians For?, which is really good. Um, 
let me see here. And, and as uh, you were, it, you know, like when you got your master's and stuff, like any, I guess you're a, the, you know, theologian, but have any shaped your pastoral, ima your imagination more on the pastoral side? Oh, well? oh, yes. Uh, oh, I could talk forever about this. I have a shelf right above me that is my hall, my pastoral theology hall of fame. So I'll just oh, read cool. some of the names. Uh, Eugene Peterson. Yeah. Yeah, just read Eugene Peterson. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, for pastors and also for um, for parishioners. Uh, he's got a vision of the church that is so beautiful, but it's not sentimental or naive. Um, I'll tell you another one. Uh, Dorothy Sula, who's a 20th century German theologian, has written an essay on the church that I think is fantastic in her book, Thinking About God, where she's very, very honest about the failures and, and uh, problems with the church, but also about the promise of the church. And she gives a good argument for why uh, you can't have Jesus without the church. She, she mm. says she understands the sort of, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church mentality, understands the appeal of that, but she gives a good argument for why um, that doesn't quite work in the end. Uh, Edward Terniason, who is a contemporary of Bart's, has written a book called A Theology of Pastoral Care. It's maybe the most magnificent book I've ever read on the topic. Um, you also, I recommend uh, St. Gregory the Great. Yes. Back in the seventh century, his book of yeah. pastoral rule, uh, which is magnificent. Uh, and I'll tell you a book that has helped me a lot. He's not a well-known figure at all, and that's the point. A guy named Joe Beach, Joseph Beach, who is a Denver SEM alum. Uh, oh, wow. He graduated here may maybe in the 1980s. Uh, and I want to give him a shout-out. He pastors a church in South Denver off South Federal called Amazing Grace. He's been doing it for about hmm. 50 years. And he wrote a book uh, in recent years called Ordinary Church. And the subtitle is A Long and Loving Look. Hmm. Um, and it's a sort of practical sort of not highly technical ecclesiology. He's just laying out this beautiful vision of the local congregation. So uh, one of our alums, um, the book really, really helped me, Ordinary Church. Um, because the truth is, I'll just speak to our seminarians here if they're listening. Uh, you may graduate and get a job as a lead pastor at a big church, but I don't think so. Uh, I think it's probably going to be a while if you do get there. And likely you're going to find yourself in a just regular, plain, ordinary church. Mm. Um, but the good news is that God loves the ordinary church, loves it. That's great. Gave himself That's for great. it. That's great. That's a great closing word. We are, uh, as we record this, you and I are going to get robed tomorrow for our convocation and kick off the school year. What are, what's energizing you about fall? Oh man. I, besides stretching uh, in our robes. I mean, I know that's the highlight of the year. <laughs> That is the big thing. And I think I'll probably just wear it full time this semester. Yeah. <laughs> like, a, like a medieval theologian. Yeah. Uh, I'm very excited. I'm teaching uh, intro to theology, which I love because it's a lot of students who uh, sort of have to take theology and are uh, wondering why. And then if I can move the needle just a bit and they can see uh, the beauty and love of theology by the end of the semester, it's really energizing for me. I'm teaching a historical theology survey, uh, which I love very much. Um, and I've revived uh, during the, the summer we're off, but during term time, I facilitate a reading group for se seminary students and alums and anybody else who wants to come called oh, Dead Germans. Cool. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, where we read Dead Germans, usually books in theological anthropology, which are a great interest of mine. Uh, so that's great. And then uh, basketball season. I've been in a sports Amen. desert for many months. Yes, I'm waiting, man. I know. Yeah. 
So yeah. uh, the def- the defending champion Denver Nuggets, whom I love uh, more than anything, um, will be back in action. And I loved them before they were good. I'd like that on the record. Yes, I, please. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, you were. I went to. Yeah, I went to uh, one of my earliest sports memories is going to a Nuggets game to watch uh, the 13 win Denver Nuggets play David Robinson and the Spurs and they lost by like 40. So I've been doing this um, a long time. Wow. I think my first game was when I was uh, before I even was a student at Denver Seminary. So early, early to mid 90s, I think. Uh, so before yep. Dikembe Mutombo, yeah, I mean, they were using people like Fat Lever, I mean, so it was like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and the rainbow yeah. jerseys, you know, so. Fun teams, but never any good. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, wow. Welcome, well, yeah, welcome back, basketball. That's right. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for uh, the gift of your time and for helping to challenge and, and uh, clarify my thinking and hopefully our listeners as well. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was really fun.